Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. This is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. And if you don't know what an insider threat is, maybe you work outside of government or maybe you work outside of industry because insider threats are certainly a hot topic that a lot of folks are talking about. And so in that vein, I'm very pleased to have with us Dr. Eric Lang. He is the director of DOD's Personnel and Security Research Center. He's written extensively about insider threats, including a recent paper about seven science-based recommendations for understanding and countering insider threats. So to talk about this white paper and other things, he is here joining us today. And so thank you so much, Dr. Lang, for being on the show. Thank you. Lindy. I really appreciate being able to talk to your audience. And if they have any questions or feedback afterwards, I'm sure they'll be able to find me. I should say that anything I cover in this podcast, my opinions and not necessarily the positions or plans of any part of the government. When we think about insider threats, I think the high profile names are what comes to mind. But insider threats are certainly far beyond those headline cases. Why are insider threats bigger issues than just kind of the hot topics that you might hear about in the news? You're exactly right. Many people think of the big classic malicious insiders like Robert Hansen. And of course, those kinds of insiders do tremendous damage. The truth is those are very rare events. And research shows that the most common type of insider event is a non-malicious insider. So these are people who unintentionally create a vulnerability or a spill because of negligence, bad training, poor motivation, what's called bad cyber hygiene or reliability problems due to things like stress or alcohol and drugs. They just don't follow security rules and they create a vulnerability. So that's the most common type. And because we are in a world that is so connected by information systems, they are creating tremendous kinds of security spills and vulnerabilities. That is the most common type. And in fact, the second most common type is still not the malicious Robert Hansen types, but what we call non-malicious, but intentional. So these are insiders, employees who mean well, but they bend or break security rules for things like trying to help their supervisor. So their boss needs information for a congressional briefing on Monday to help. They will take classified information home. And of course, that creates a vulnerability. It breaks a rule and it can result in a spill. Or similarly, they might connect a secure and a non-secure system to get the data they need to help their boss, that creates a vulnerability and a problem. So it's those non-malicious insiders that are creating the biggest problems. And just this month, there were a couple of high-profile spills just like that. Uber and Rockstar Games both had tremendous insider breaches. They both have lots of extensive and expensive IT protection, but an 18-year-old hacker by the handle teapot used essentially a kind of social engineering, contacted them, people at Uber and Rockstar. And despite all that IT protection, 
those inside individuals gave up credentials and caused tremendous breaches. Yeah, and you bring up such a good point when it comes to these issues. I mean, the data compromise and the risk to national security, it exists regardless of the motivation behind the person doing it. And so I think, yeah, you highlight that well. Like We think about these folks, maybe the ideological motivations or things like that, but it really doesn't matter who's compromising your network. If there's an insider there who's able to get data or breach information, we need to have a lot of different systems set up to help find all of those individuals. Yeah. And the point is, because it's always a human, we just need to pay more attention to human factors, issues. Technology will always be important, but we're just not paying enough attention to the human factors, issues, and particularly the non-malicious insiders that are causing those vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. One of the things that you have discussed in your research and writing before is kind of the increased risk for insider threats caused by remote work. That's super prevalent right now. We're kind of talking talking about return to work or what that looks like. But why is remote work potentially opening up more vulnerabilities for companies, offices, and agencies? What's happening with remote work is that people are blending their IT use. They're using more personal devices as part of their work. And in many cases, the employers may not have provided effective or secure IT equipment. And when we do surveys, we find that 62% of individuals do not follow security protocols as closely at home as when they're in the office. And then, of course, for malicious employees being at home, it's much easier to steal or print or store intellectual property because they're working out of the privacy of their own home. And that's being borne out in statistics as well. When we look at insider criminal prosecutions, 75% involve remote workers. Whoa, I had not heard that before. We teased this article when I was introducing you. You've written an article about the seven science-based commandments for countering insider threats. Certainly, it's a great article, great information there. Check it out if you haven't already. We don't have time to unpack all of them, but what are a few of the takeaways for those working in or around national security about some of those science-based commandments around insider threat? That's a great question. I would have answered it one way right after I wrote the article, but I'm an empiricist, so I'm going to answer it a different way based on the feedback I've gotten, because it's been out for about six weeks, it's been downloaded or shared over 2,000 times, and I've gotten a lot of feedback. Individuals who read it resonate to two of the six commandments. The second most popular one is the one on mental health, and it really highlights that organizations, despite putting out appropriate policy still have too many people at all levels, front level managers, all the way up to senior leaders who have bad assumptions and myths about mental health. For example, that a mental health condition greatly raises the risk that the individual will be violent. And that's simply not true. And statistics and research based on decades of work by the American Psychological Association shows that violence risk is really small and pretty much comparable to the violence risk of other people who don't have mental health conditions. The other mental health myth, if you will, is if you have a condition or you got treatment, that it will very likely 
result in a denial or revocation of a security clearance. And again, that's simply not true. And the statistics from the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, who does the adjudications, most of the adjudications, shows that just a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% of individuals who have what's called a guideline I or psychological condition will result in a denial or revocation. I think DOD and DCSA in particular, ODNI as well, they have really pushed the mental health, you know, reducing stigma issues and saying like the best thing you can do is be proactive around mental health issues. I think that's a key takeaway. Like if you have the biggest issue and security vulnerability is for somebody who potentially has issues, whether it's mental health or finances or anything else and doesn't actually treat them. So mental health is one example of that. And this actually ties into my next question around continuous vetting. Mindy, I want to expand on that because you made a great point. Preventing it through the right messaging is important because, as I just pointed out, if you have a mental health condition or you're getting treatment, that almost never will result in a denial or revocation. However, because of the stigma, some people either will not get the treatment they need, which means they're in a sensitive position and and getting worse, or they'll get treatment and lie on their standard Form 86, the Personnel Security Questionnaire. Having a conditioner getting treatment won't undermine your security clearance, but lying on a government form will, and some people lose their clearance because of that. But you hint at another important factor, which gets at the most important commandment. The most feedback I've gotten is actually on the seventh commandment, the one that deals with organizational culture. And you kind of intimated that because you can put out the right mental health policies But then you have to follow it up with real in-person communication and developing the psychologically safe and organization culture that it's healthy. And that seventh commandment is all about how organizations in the government, outside the government, still aren't doing that well enough. And that's where a lot of the feedback I've been getting is just resonating and people are saying, yeah, we have to do better on organizational culture, particularly how we train the frontline supervisors, because everyone's got one and that person affects greatly for good or bad health and well-being and satisfaction and engagement of their employees. We talk a lot, especially at clearance jobs, about the role of the security officer in this, but you're bringing up the frontline supervisor. We've had a lot of commentary and thought around insider threats and kind of really presenting how it is a whole company issue. It is a senior leadership issue. It is a frontline supervisor issue. Can you speak to that? It's not just a security function and probably the best people to address insider threats or identify them or help see issues in their workplace aren't always going to be the security officers because they don't always have visibility on everybody across the organization. You're exactly right. Human behavior is ambiguous. And so... You know, we have indicator lists and rules about what should be reported, but it's all about follow-up. And the research shows more often than not, it's not a true security issue. It's an HR issue. Someone has, you know, some acute stress. They need some help and support. So, you know, one of the bottom lines is HR and security really need to work together and communicate. And it's all about 
teamwork between HR and security and the proper follow-up of, you know, someone who surfaces with a flag or an indicator and getting them the right help. Because more often than not, it will be an HR issue, not a security issue. And also ties into this is definitely continuous vetting, continuous evaluation. You mentioned continuous vetting in one of your commandments that you wrote about in your article. Do you think our current CD programs are sufficient to answer the issue of continuous evaluating clearance holders and identifying some of these issues that come up? I think the jury's out on whether it's sufficient. It's certainly improving. It's moving in the right direction. And of course, to be transparent, I'm a proponent because uh, Perserec did the original work on continuous evaluation, continuous vetting back in the 1990s, and we produced the automated continuous evaluation system, ACES. And that prototype and proof of concept laid the foundation for Mirador and the continuous evaluation, continuous vetting that we're getting now. So about 4 million, over 4 million people are currently enrolled in some form of continuous vetting, and it's it's more than just clearance holders. So we're certainly moving in the right direction. I think it will be inextricably tied to what's called Trusted Workforce 2.0. That's not fully implemented. And when it is, the vision is to have a very integrated system through NBIS, the National Background Investigation Services, that will tie it all together. So I think we need to wait for all that integration to mature and then evaluate the program and answer your question about whether it's sufficient. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one piece of the puzzle that we see in putting together this, you know, improved trusted workforce that we have here and the technology under MBIS. I think the hope is that we will be able to be rolling out more robust solutions and have better continuous vetting. But even with continuous vetting, there's still a very human piece in terms of as CV identifies things, making sure that we are in a position to hopefully address and mitigate issues to keep and retain people in our workforce, even that might have things bubbling up to the surface. But the more we can proactively address them, I think CV can help us do that and help have a you know a more secure workforce. I love what you wrote because you really talk about the human piece of all of this. So kind of talk about these human-based approaches. We obviously have the technology. We are going to keep the technology. The technology helps to enable better conversations for supervisors. What new approaches do we need to take in this system to help us continue to be technology-enabled but human-centric? Yeah, it's not so much that they're new approaches, but organizations have to avail themselves of best practices that already exist. And it's, it's more of a mindset shift because we get overly secure with the easy technological answers. It's very easy to say, I'll just buy a new user activity monitoring that's more thorough and feel that you're protected. And, you know, it's better protection, but is it sufficient protection? No. The biggest gaps and the biggest opportunities continue to be on the human factors side. So, you know, we really have to do a mind shift. We need to focus on humans over hardware and psychology over software. And it's not the quick purchase of, of technology. It has to do with the things that are more complex and ambiguous about better training. You know, we have see something, say something policies, but often across all kinds of insider threats, everything from espionage, terrorism, vandalism, and even the non-malicious types, those see something, say something 
programs fail. And they don't fail because of technology. They fail because of the social psychology influences behind them. And there are some best practices to improve that kind of training. So we need to focus on those kinds of better training. And then in the broader sense, the organizational culture factors, you know, the things like developing psychological safety and organizational trust and engagement, because that will move from detection to earlier prevention. It creates an environment that will breed less insider threat. And by the way, in addition to improving how we manage insider threat, you also get higher satisfaction and more productivity and and less turnover. A lot of organizations will, will listen to this and say, okay, what's the one size fits all best practice we need for the organization? But the truth is many organizations are big and the organizational cultural issues are different within it. There will be different pockets of good and bad cultures depending on divisions and branches and individual supervisors. So we really need to take an approach that is customized to where the risk is and what human factors are needed to address those kinds of risks. That's a great point. And it ties into, I think, one of the you know favorite lines that I had from the paper that you wrote was, you know, in your conclusion is that insider threats are done by individuals and most can be prevented by individuals as well. Like we, again, we have technology, we have software that can assist, but there is always a human piece to identifying these. And when we look at the risk factors, the red flags, those are generally tied to human behavior and will have to be reported by other humans. Yeah. And just to add on to that, I can't emphasize it enough. Culture is more important than the policy. The policy is necessary, but the organizational culture is more important. There's a famous organizational guru named Peter Drucker who famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's when organizations were highlighting the need for good organizational strategy. And what I think the research has shown since he said that is it's become even more important. And I I could now say organizational culture eats strategy for breakfast, technology for lunch, and policy for dinner. It really is the basis of why things work well or don't work well. And that's where we need to to focus more on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lang, for being on the program. We will link to your paper, The Seven Science-Based Commandments for Understanding and Countering Insider Threats. And certainly check out the great work that Perserec is doing and across the DOD and IC community on providing information both to government and industry about addressing insider threats, because there are a lot more resources out there than there used to be. Um, And that is a great thing and a, a great thing for both the government workforce, but also private sector and industry who also will benefit from these tips as well. So thank you again, Dr. Lang. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.